All right, if you want to start making your way back to your seats. And go ahead and turn your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 24. We we touched on on verses uh, four through seven on on uh, last Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, but we're going to sort of do a little uh, broader treatment of the whole section today um, as we as we fast draw towards the end of our. Uh, multi-year journey through the Gospel of Luke. So, um, we're getting close. I said, I look back, we started Luke in, at the end of 2019. So before COVID, like that was a long time ago, right? And so we've, we've been inching through it, but we're getting close now. So, uh, Luke chapter 24 verses one through 12. On the first day of the week, early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hand of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for a chance to gather together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is a light unto our path. God, that you feed us through your word, that by your word, we know you and your character. We know your son, Jesus Christ. God, were it not for your word, we would, um, God, we would look at the world around us. We would see a, a kind of revelation through, through nature. We would see a kind of revelation through history. God, we would sense a kind of revelation in our own hearts. And yet the clarity and specificity, God, the, the, um, God, the way that you have shown us yourself so truly and openly through your word, God, it is irreplaceable in our lives. And so we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would turn our hearts towards it, uh, that we would be people who um, read your word and study your word and memorize your word and imbibe your word. God, as, as one person has said, that we would so be so full of your word that if you were to prick our fingers, that we would bleed Bible. Um, God, we ask that we would know your word so well um, that it would be part of everything that we do. God, as we 
open your word and you speak to us. God, we pray that your spirit would move and we pray that your spirit has moved in churches all over Blunt County this day. God, we pray that um, you would go before us. God, that um, in the midst of the division and, and difficulties and, and tragedies and trials that we find in our world, God, that your spirit would be moving and stirring hearts, um, that you would be um, convicting of sin, that you would be making people aware of the great need they have for Jesus Christ in their lives. God, that they would feel a sense of, of the lack of community and that they would seek out that community among uh, the church and among other believers. God, that you would be working in all these different ways ahead of us. And that as we go forth and as we share your word in daily conversations, as we share your word with friends and family, God, as we share your word in more formal settings like teaching and preaching, God, that you would have already prepared the soils of our hearts, that you would have plowed it and, and tilled it and stirred it up and prepared it for the implantation of the seed of your word. God, we ask these things because um, we know that if if you are not working in these ways, um, God, that our our ears will be closed, our minds will be closed off, our hearts will be, um, God, fallow and rocky. And we need uh, your spirit to to work and to prepare and to move so that we can know and hear and absorb your word. God, we thank you for it. We ask that you would do all those things now as as we look to the gospel of Luke. Um, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to check in again on this passage in, in the Gospel of Luke. And so the sort of angle that I want to talk to you today around this passage, um, consider the idea of, of the fact that the resurrection uh, and the events surrounding it and the way um, it all plays out uh, are an important a key passage when it comes to the apologetic function for the truthfulness of Christianity, okay? So what I mean by that is this, is that when we are trying to talk to people and share with people about the truth of, of Christianity, the resurrection account plays a particular role in the truthfulness of, of what we say and the validity of what we say and the plausibility of what we say. It's not only the central event in terms of like everything we believe along with the cross, but it, but it has a unique something. There's a unique function to it. And, and we've talked about the fact before that when you look throughout history, there are dozens and dozens of people throughout history who have said, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic or whatever. And then they've decided that they will investigate the claims of Christianity. And more often than not, it is the resurrection at which when they investigate the, the story of the resurrection, it is at that point that they recognize that they've been wrong and they turn to Christ. All right. It is the situation and the evidence of the resurrection that is the thing that we go, I get it now, um, or, or I have to deal with this thing now or whatever. Okay. And so when, I, when we talk about apologetics, right, you're probably familiar with that word, but the word apologetic, we talk about giving a reasoned answer for the things that we believe, right? So if we're talking in terms of apologetics or, or studying in terms of apologetics, we're talking about giving reasoned answers for the things that we believe. And that can be across a whole number of topics. But I think 
it's interesting because apologetics, and this is a, this is my opinion, this isn't necessarily something that everybody believes, but I feel like a lot of times apologetics does a way better job of building up the Christian's confidence than it does of tearing down the walls of an atheist's unbelief, okay? So a lot of times we think, oh, I'm going to come up with all these great arguments uh, for the truth of Christianity, and I'm going to tell people these arguments, and then that's just going to tear down those walls that they've built up to that. And that can sometimes be the truth. But I think oftentimes it doesn't because most of the time our arguments against Christianity aren't intellectual arguments, okay? We may say they are. That may be the front that we put on to comfort ourselves, but they're not. There's something more than that. They have to do with identity. They have to do with morality. They have to do with this idea of saying, I'm going to live my own life and live it how I please, and I don't want um, anybody interfering with that. And so I'll put up all these intellectual arguments as a shield, but that's not really what the problem is, because a lot of times even when those shields are uh, lowered, the, the heart is unmoved even then. But yet, that doesn't mean there's no place for this stuff. Because again, sometimes these are the things that change people's hearts. It makes them recognize that they've been foolish, that they've been, uh, that they've not really investigated the stories of the scriptures rightly. And more importantly, maybe even for us, it encourages us in our faith. It gives us more confidence when it comes to the plausibility of Christianity. When, when we have these things in our heads where we go, man, I know what I believe, like Jesus Christ has changed my life, but sometimes, man, I just, you have a little doubt that comes in and you still feel like, am I sure about certain things? Do I question these things? Am I right about these things? Apologetics has the way of sort of building us up and saying, no, you can, you can, you can stand on solid ground in these things, right? You can trust because, because these things are reasoned and rational and we find them in the scriptures, okay? And so there is, again, no event that is probably more central to this idea than the resurrection. And so what I want to look at is this story in the resurrection through an apologetics kind of lens. And so the, the, the idea there at the title of the sermon, these four witnesses to the resurrection, the idea that in this passage we see four people who give witness or four things that give witness to the resurrection, that speak to the actuality and the plausibility of the resurrection. And that we can think about those things in an apologetics kind of way as they are giving rational grounds for uh, the truth of Christianity. And those four witnesses are, kind of give you uh, looking ahead, the four witnesses are the empty tomb, the angels, the word, and the women. Okay? The empty tomb, the angels, the word, and the women. So let's look at that first one, the empty tomb. So it says again, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. All right? The empty tomb is one of the strongest apologetic aspects, one of the strongest evidences for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Because here's the thing. The tomb is empty. And it seems to be the case that everybody agrees on that, right? Believers and unbelievers, uh, people who are looking at the stories, looking at history, looking at all these things, everybody believes that the tomb is empty. They agree that Jesus' body is gone, right? That's an agreed upon fact. So then the question immediately has to be asked, well, cool, where is the body? Where did it go? 
We all agree. And again, not everybody. There's always a naysayer out there, right? But everybody agrees that there was a historical figure named Jesus. Pretty much everybody agrees that this man was crucified in Jerusalem by the Roman government in collusion with the, the, the Jewish uh, people. And everybody agrees that the tomb is empty, that Jesus' body is not there. So where did it go? Well, there's only certain ideas that could be, at least on the surface, likely or plausible. So let's say, first off, maybe grave robbers. Grave robbers could have come and taken the body. But here's the problem with that. Jesus is a penniless, executed criminal buried in haste. Not to mention that his grave was guarded by Roman soldiers. So the reality is, I mean, nobody's going to rob that grave, okay? If you're a rich man, if you had nice clothes or buried with a bunch of jewelry or something, yeah, maybe somebody goes after your grave. But it doesn't make any sense that Jesus would have just had a random grave robbery and somebody took his body, okay? Maybe the Jews, did the Jews take Jesus' body? The religious leaders might have taken it. In an effort to keep Jesus' grave and his death from ending up being some sort of like martyr pilgrimage symbol that the people of Israel could rally around for this new sect that seemed to be forming. And so the Jews took his body. But again, that doesn't make any sense because if that was the case, why didn't they produce the body when this sect started getting going, when the when the disciples say, no, Jesus has been resurrected, why don't the Jews say, uh, he hasn't been resurrected? In fact, here's his body. We stole it, and we can show you where it's at. So it doesn't make sense that the Jews stole it. What about the Romans? The same thing is basically true of the Romans. They could have taken the body. They certainly had access to it because it was their guards guarding the tomb. But the motive isn't there. If they were trying to stop the rise of this new sect, they did the opposite, right? Um, if they didn't want Jesus' teaching to continue to go forth, they literally did the opposite by taking the body. And at any point, they could have disproved the claims of the apostles who are saying that Jesus has been raised from the dead by saying, he hasn't been, we stole the body, it's in this grave, we can take you to it. Now, obviously, the, the more likely, probably the more probable group that would have taken it, or at least people would think, would be the apostles. If the apostles were the ones that stole Jesus' body. And in fact, this lie spread by the Jews, the Bible tells us, that they came, stole the body, so that they could claim that Jesus has raised from the dead to cement this new sect um, and their authority within that new sect, Right? Sounds pretty plausible, right? These guys are faking Jesus' resurrection to start this new religion that they will be the head of, okay? Sounds like something that, that maybe somebody might do. The only problem is, if that's the case, then these guys, these 12 disciples or 11 disciples, are the only ones that know that Jesus really isn't risen, that he's actually dead, right? And this is all a sham. The problem is, is that obviously, and we've talked about this many times, is that those disciples don't live lives of opulence and, 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 you know, authority and wealth because of this new position as apostles of this new sect. No, in fact, they are uh, rejected, ostracized. They don't benefit financially from it because as we read in the, in the first chapters of Acts, there is a communal um, existence going on where people are giving their money and it's being shared. Um, not only do they not benefit from it financially or, or socially, but all of them, with the exception of the Apostle John, end up being murdered 
in super awful ways, right? Boiled alive and hacked to pieces and crucified upside down. And at any point, any one of those guys could say, whoa, 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 whoa. Just don't draw and quarter me. I'll tell you where the body is. We stole it. It's in this place in Jerusalem. I can take you to it. It's all a lie. Just don't kill me. Except the case is, is that none of them do that. Every single one of them go to their deaths in cruel and awful ways. Why? Because every single one of them knows for a fact that Jesus Christ is resurrected. They have seen him. They have spoken to him. They have staked their entire lives on that truth because they've witnessed it with their very own eyes. Right? Now, the apostles live in light of the reality of that. And so the idea that the body was just taken by somebody doesn't add up. Well, if it wasn't taken, then obviously sort of, again, apologetically, we might say, well, what what did happen? The most reliable witness you could hope for tells us exactly what happened to the body of Jesus. And that reliable witness is the second of our four witnesses. It's the angels. The angels come and tell us exactly what has happened to Jesus' body. Verse 4, while they're wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. So we know from reading the Bible that angels act as as heralds. They are uh, proclaimers of God's truth, of of God's revelation in in any number of places. Um, They appear at specific and important moments to announce and give heavenly um, uh, credence to the events that are taking place. And, and we could look all through the Bible and see stories of angels interacting and, and, and uh, coming into certain situations. The one that probably immediately we think of being in the Gospel of Luke is we remember back, we're at the very end, the last chapter of, of the Gospel of Luke, we remember back at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke when angels appeared another time. They appear to these shepherds at the birth of Jesus. And what do they do? They proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, good goodwill towards men. Um, born unto you this day in the city of David is a savior, Christ the King, right? And so the angels are the ones declaring the truth of what has happened. So again, here's the deal. The tomb is empty. Something happened to the body of Jesus and simple explanations like somebody took it just don't make any sense. So that means we have to move away from simple explanations and get to explanations that are more spectacular. Things that um, might be harder to believe, typically. So, for example, did you know, you probably have heard this too, that there is a legend uh, in India that Jesus was crucified, taken down from the cross, and put in the tomb. But that he wasn't dead, he just seemed to be dead. And that while he was in the tomb, in the cool of the tomb, resting over that course of, of, of two days... He revived, was able to get up, roll this multi-ton stone out of the way, karate chop a couple of guards, and then disappear hundreds and thousands of miles away into India where he became some sort of guru, bodhisattva, uh, you know, wise man kind of character, right? And you might say, Ash, that's stupid. And the answer is, you're exactly right. It is stupid. That makes no sense. It's way harder to believe that than it is any other, anything else. But that's where we're at at this point. The simple explanations don't make any sense. It's got to be something a little more crazy. 
Maybe Jesus was beamed up by aliens. Maybe Jesus spontaneously combusted. Okay? It's got to be something out of the ordinary because the ordinary doesn't cut it. But here's the deal. We have these angels that appear who are trustworthy explainers exactly of what has happened. They possess knowledge beyond human comprehension. They don't have egos and agendas to to lie to us and tell false stories and try to mislead us in some way. They exist to do the bidding of God. And so in this case, they come and the angels explain the unlikely, the miraculous thing that has taken place. And that is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's never happened before. People don't just rise from the dead. We know this is a crazy thing to say, but we're angels. We're trustworthy and you can believe it. What has happened is Jesus has not ninja kicked some Romans and gone to India. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He was dead. He is alive again. And you shouldn't be seeking him in graves because he's not a dead man anymore. He's something else. It's one thing for a human to make some claim like that, right? Excitable, distractible, reactionary humans. Like if you see some person... And they're like, I think he's raised from the dead. I think he's raised from the dead. There would be something in you to go, I'm not sure if I'm going to believe. I'm going to need a little something more to believe what you just said. In fact, we're about to see that in just a few seconds. Because the angels almost play the foil to the women. All right? But they each play an important apologetic function. The angels play the function of being trustworthy explainers. All right? If you're going to listen to anybody... I mean, listen to an angel. If we were sitting here right now and all of a sudden like behind me, like a portal in space and time opens up and this dazzling, terrible being steps out and says, hey, College Street, Ash is about to say something really important. You should listen to it, right? You're probably going to pay more attention in the next five minutes, right? Way more attention than you might if like your wife was just like, are you even awake? Are you listening to me? Like the angel's testimony has credence that a person's testimony doesn't, all right? And so they are the second of these four witnesses. And they are the sort of, like, again, the opposite of the function that the women play, but you'll see what I mean by that in in just a second. But before we get there, let's jump to the word, the word being the third Witness to the resurrection. Remember, verse 6, how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be be crucified, and on the third day raise again. And then they remembered his words. All right? So here's the deal. The written word of Scripture and the prophetic word that Jesus has been teaching both bear witness to the resurrection as well. And so consider this. This is just sort of like a, a, a little a little argument, a little tangent off of all this stuff. So we have talked about over and over again in the Gospel of Luke that the first century Jewish believers were expecting a different kind of Messiah, right? They knew a Messiah was coming. They believed in the prophecies that a Messiah was coming, but they thought he was going to look different. They thought he was going to be a conquering king, kind of overthrow oppression kind of guy, all right? Now, we also know, as we look to the Old Testament, there are a lot of Old Testament passages that speak biographically about who the Messiah is going to be. So, for example, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is going to come from the region around Nazareth. The, the Messiah is going to be called out of Egypt. 
And again, people weren't sure exactly how these things were going to fit together, but they saw these passages and, and they recognized them. Okay. So if there is this accepted idea about what the Messiah is going to look like, then, and follow with me, then somebody might be able to fake that. Does that make sense? Like if everybody's on board and saying, we know what the Messiah is going to look like, then maybe some random dude comes along named Jesus and he goes, you know what? I was born in Bethlehem and I'm from Nazareth originally. And we lived in Egypt for a little while while I was a kid. You know what? I could play the role of the Messiah. And then he looks up a few other prophecies and he's like, the Messiah's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. I got a donkey. I could do that, right? You can imagine this scenario in which a person played out the script, right? Because everybody knew what a Messiah looked like and Jesus just stepped into that role. I'm not sure what that means. We're gonna, we're not gonna read that as a sign. We're just gonna say it's just, it's just a balloon. Okay. Jesus steps into this role, except what happened? That's not what happened. What ends up happening is Jesus ends up not fitting the script at all. Right? The kind of Messiah that he is is the opposite of what anybody is expecting. However, after he dies, people start looking back at the scriptures and going, you know what, actually, we should have seen these things all along. Jesus did fulfill all of these things. They start reading those passages we've talked about. Isaiah 20, uh, Isaiah 53 and, and Psalm 22 and the suffering servant and this crucified Messiah. And they go, that's, we've never seen that stuff before. We never thought the Messiah, it was all going to go down like that, but it did. And now we see it. Okay. There's a special, there's something interesting going on there apologetically. Okay that not only does the word testify to who Jesus is, but the fact that it was unexpected and only seen in hindsight testifies even more. Does that make sense, right? Like if Jesus had just played out the script, there would at least be the argument that, well, anybody could have done it, right? Because everybody knows what it looks like. But if Jesus does everything wrong, but then in hindsight goes actually there's all this stuff there that we'd never seen before until Jesus showed us that that was there. Then all of a sudden you go, yeah, man, I think this guy is really who he said he was. He fulfilled those prophecies in a way that we could never expected or anticipated, which speaks in a weird way to his validity. It takes away the argument that he was just playing a part and that maybe it got he got caught up in the wheels of, of the, the Roman Empire or something like that. No, Jesus did exactly what he was supposed to do. Because that was what had been prophesied, not only in the word, but he had been prophesying that it would happen. So the Bible says it would happen. Jesus said it would happen. Now it has happened. And it all makes sense, which is a third witness to the resurrection. Just like the angels say, where, where would you expect him to be? He told you he was going to rise from the dead and he's not in the grave anymore. Of course he's resurrected. That's what you should have expected. All right, so that's a third witness. And then the final witness is the women. And again, you've probably, we've talked about it in here before, I'm sure, but, but you've maybe um, talked about this argument as you've read the scriptures before too. Verse 9 says that when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to his apostles. But they did not believe the women. 
because their words seem to them like nonsense. All right. So just as a little side note, when, when somebody says, when you tell somebody that Jesus is resurrected and then they say, yeah, well, that's primitive people believed in stuff like that back in 2000 years ago. They believe that things like resurrections happened. The answer is no, they didn't. Nobody believes that resurrections happen because resurrections don't happen. In fact, they haven't happened since Jesus was resurrected, right? When the disciples were told that Jesus was raised from the dead, you know what their interpretation of that was? This is nonsense, okay? You women, you're worked up, okay? You, you This is a sad event, right? We are all broken up by this. We are all wrecked by it. We know Jesus I mean, we know, women, that, that Jesus was very close to many of you, right? Some of you have been healed by him. You're related to some. Some of you are related to Jesus, right? We get that this is an emotional time, but come on. People don't raise from the dead. The reality is, and, and you may know this, or you've got a study Bible that you've read it in. In the first century, in Palestine, a woman's testimony was not recognized legally. A woman couldn't even testify in court about something she had seen because people just said, you can't trust uh, a, a woman's interpretation of those things. You can't trust what she would say. Honestly, it's an embarrassment to the early church that the resurrection account rests on the testimony of women. Okay? And so, again, the women sort of are the opposite of the angels in this situation. The role they play in the apologetic. The angel appears and says something, you believe it, right? If a woman in this culture, racked by grief, racked by despair, makes this outrageous claim, you don't include it in the story. That just seems like a foolish thing to do. You don't put that in a story unless you don't care that it's an embarrassing fact because you only care about what actually happened. You care about telling the truth of what actually happened. And the truth is, it was these women who first saw Jesus. It was the women who first discovered the empty tomb. It was the women who are the ones who were the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And again, these words seem like nonsense to them. But you wouldn't include that story unless it was real, unless it was true. If the angels said it, it must be true because angels are trustworthy. And if the women said it, it must be true because you would never present them as witnesses if you had any other options. And so the truth is played sort of from both sides of the coin between the angels and the women. And so we see those four witnesses, right? The empty tomb is a witness to this. The angels are a witness to this. The word and prophecy of God and Jesus is a witness to this. And these women are a witness at the end. And you know what? We have a responsibility. And this is what I would say all people have a responsibility to, is to do what Peter did. Is Peter, we see this little passage at the very end, and it says, so what did Peter do? We know how they all responded. That's a bunch of nonsense. You'll probably get that when you share the good news of Jesus Christ with some people. Even when you tell them of the the logical, rational um, reality of the, of the of the truths of Scripture, the things that we've talked about here, a lot of people are going to say, that's nonsense. The things that you are saying are nonsense. They don't make any sense. I don't believe those things. But Peter does something different. 
It seems to be the case that we find out also that John is with Peter, but all the other disciples probably just sort of say, ah, Mary Magdalene, you crazy, right? We're, we're, we're going to stay here and hide out because we're not listening to your nonsense. But you know what Peter does? Peter says, I'm going to go do a little bit of investigating. I'm going to go check this out for myself. So it says Peter got up and he ran to the tomb. And then notice these wording. Again, I, I'm, I'm reading into that. I'm, I'm allegorizing them a little bit, but there's there's some cool stuff there. He runs to the tomb, the empty tomb of Jesus. And what does he do? It says he bends down. He crouches down. He gets low so that he can get into the tomb and look around, right? There's a picture there that says we have to humble ourselves if we're going to truly seek out the truth in these things. If if people are arrogant, if people say nonsense, fairy tales, uh, I don't believe any of this this stuff. I'm a, a modern, scientific, educated, you know, enlightened person. I don't believe in all that nonsense like a resurrection and stuff like that. Here's the truth. They're never going to get it. They're not. And you're not going to get it. Nobody's going to get it. You can't come to Jesus acting like you know better. There's a process that we have to humble ourselves. We have to kneel down. We have to get into the tomb and we have to investigate these things for ourselves. And then you know what? It says, Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened, right? We have to let these truths work on us. Now, again, I'm looking at y'all and I'm going, I think everybody in here is already a follower of Jesus Christ, okay? But we have to think about, as we're sharing these with other people, that that's the way these things have to work in their lives. And you know it immediately sometimes. You talk to somebody and you share these things and there are all the walls are up. And you can see that you're just throwing pebbles at this, that this, at this wall. And you know what? Until God humbles that person, until some of those walls are broken down, you're probably not going to get through to, to them. But some people, you will share these truths. You will share these apologetic angles with them. You will share the rationality of what the scriptures say about the resurrection. And you will see that that is a person who is willing to say, I want to investigate these things. I want to check and see if this stuff could actually be true. I'm willing to go to the tomb. I'm willing to to get low. I'm willing to stoop in and investigate and really think on these things. And I'm willing to walk away wondering what has happened, right? And not just pretending like I already know what has happened. You'll meet people like that. I hope you meet people like that. I hope when we share the gospel with people, we come across people who the spirit is already working in, who are willing to actually consider and listen and, and take into account the things that, that the word of God says. So again, I don't know, uh, I, I don't really have a place for you to go with that necessarily, right? Um, I think the case is, is that what I want you to do is one, be encouraged in your faith. I want these to be four little locks, right? Four little things that shore up your faith. You believe in Jesus, you know what he's done, you trust him and him in your life, and yet in the dark points, those just little creeping thoughts that come in, you go, Man, am I right? Is this all? Am I crazy? Have I believed um, in vain? Like, what's? We all have those, okay? Um, you might not like to talk about it. You don't want to admit it. You don't want to just share that with people all the time because you think it makes you sound like you're not a believer or something like that. But the truth is, we all experience those things. And yet, these little apologetic truths are things that say, "No, my faith is sure because I've experienced it, but it's also sure because it makes sense." And I can go to God's word and trust it and see that these things are playing out. So I hope it does that in your life. I hope it's a buttress in your own life, but I hope it's something that you can also take and take to the, 
to your friends. Um, take to somebody who says, you know, I don't believe in resurrections because resurrections don't happen. And you can say, well, would you at least consider this? Would you consider the reality of the empty tomb? Would you consider the reality of this angelic witness? Would you consider the reality of the fact that the word and Jesus prophesied these things hundreds and, and, and even more than that, thousands of years before they happened? And would you, would you consider the witness of these women and the improbability of, of them being witnesses? Would you just consider those things and see if the Lord won't use that to work on people's hearts? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And just ask that we would be, that we would be bold, that we would be winsome, that we would ask and, and share and talk to people. Um, that we would engage with them on these truths and that God would go before us, stirring up hearts, breaking down walls so that these truths could take root and change people's lives. Father God, uh, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the, in the subtle ways that you tell the story of the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, God, you are building into it. Um, the, the teachable, truth, the the apologetics-oriented way of sharing, rebuttal of argument, God, demonstrating the, the reality and the plausibility of the things that we read in your scripture. Um, God, the depth and the intricacy and the subtlety of those things in your word is incredible, beyond what we would even think someone, a, a typical person could write. Uh, we look at these things and we go, man, if, if, if Luke, Luke couldn't have thought to see all of these things that he, that you put into your word, the different angles and the different attitudes and the different, um, ways that we engage with it. God, you have created, uh, and given us your word in such a way that, God, we could just continue to look into it, continue to study and continue to dive and dig in and, and never find the bottom of it because there's always something more there for you to teach us. God, help us to, to, Engage with your word in that way, God, and help us to be faithful to share the truth of your word um, with those around us. God, we trust that you are going to be the one that changes hearts. We just ask that you would help us to be faithful in in spreading the seed and sharing uh, the testimony of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Good to see you. Glad you're here tonight. Um, hope you have a great rest of your evening and enjoy this week. Uh, we'll see you back here next um, Sunday. Um, just going along in Luke. I don't think anything else between now and then. Am I forgetting anything? We're good? All right. Here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you. Give you peace. We'll see you next week.
Arrogance. Pure arrogance. Thank you. 
Friends, and he's really negative. 